the Seeking Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meitinger. Today we are in session four of the Romans chapter eight podcast series. The series is called Spirit Life, Living in the Promises of Romans 8. And so far we have looked at verses 1 through 17 of Romans chapter 8. Today we are going to be looking at verses 18 through 25, learning what it means that we groan as we wait for our restoration and that creation groans as creation waits for its restoration and looking towards when that when that restoration will occur, which will be at the return of Christ. This chunk of scripture that we're going to look at today is one of the most beautiful chunks of scripture, I think, in the whole of scripture. I love it, and I am excited to to dive in with you and to seek the beautiful pearls that we are going to find in Romans chapter 8, verses 17, I'm sorry, verses 18 through 25. So let's go ahead and get started. So we just came off of verse 17 when the Apostle Paul was writing that we are children of God and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, that we also might be glorified with him. So last week, we we just closed last week by talking about how we are, in fact, living in a world of suffering, and we know that there is no escaping the suffering in this world, but the call we have as believers in Christ is to suffer alongside Jesus, to lean into Jesus during our suffering, because we know we have a guarantee that we will be glorified with him as well. And then Paul goes into verse 18, and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is a staggering comment. He says that the suffering of this world, which we see as so intense, he says it's not even worth comparing to the glory that is coming. How can he possibly say that? Think about the world that we live in right now. First, start small. Think about your own suffering, which may or may not feel really small right now. We go through seasons in our life where sometimes the suffering is really intense, and then it might lighten a little bit, and then the suffering will intensify again, and then it it might be, you know, each season might last a few years or a few months or a decade or or you might have a season of suffering that does not end on this earth, that it only will end when, when you step into eternity. And so suffering varies at different times in our life, but it's, it's always here. Like in, whether or not it's in your own life or the life of somebody you love dearly, your community, your nation, the world. I mean, the suffering around the world right now is just so intense. The gravity of it is so heavy. And Paul says that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now I want to encourage you to do something. If you are following along in the Spirit Life Bible study that that this podcast is following, you're going to do this in the study. If you're not following along with the with the Bible study, go ahead and get a sheet of paper. Um, if you're in the car listening to this or whatever, just do this later, of course. But at some point, sit down with your journal or just a sheet of paper 
and just be really honest about the suffering that you're currently experiencing. It's good and helpful for us to pay attention to what am I going through right now? What is weighing heavily on my heart right now? What is my body suffering right now? What is my mind going through right now? And then you can expand it out. Okay, what about the people I love? What are they going through? What is happening in my local news? What is going on nationally? What is going on in the world? Get like a grip on the suffering around you. Take time to acknowledge it. Acknowledging our suffering is really helpful. And one thing that's important about that here is the Apostle Paul is going to make a comparison here. Oftentimes we will be like, well, my suffering is not nearly as bad as hers, so I shouldn't acknowledge my own. That's not what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Uh, He is going to tell us that the only correct comparison for our suffering is to compare the suffering of this present time with the glory that is to come. That's the correct comparison for our suffering. We don't compare suffering one with another because our lives are going to keep on changing. Usually, suffering will increase the more we live on earth. So the longer we live, more often than not, suffering will increase. So especially if you're comparing your suffering with somebody who's older than you, that that is not something we're called to do. Don't compare your suffering with other people. But the correct comparison is compare your suffering with the glory that is coming. And Paul says they're not even able to be compared with one another because one of them, the glory, is so much greater, so much deeper, so much more real. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes something very similar. He says, that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing us for a glory beyond all comprehension. So he uses the words light and momentary (laughs) to describe our suffering. That's staggering. What I want us to understand is that the Apostle Paul was not ignorant. He was not ignorant about the reality of suffering. He suffered incredibly. I want to jump to his letter in 2 Corinthians. He is going to write about his suffering. And as we read about what he has undergone, we will see that this man knows a great deal about suffering. And still he is able to say that our suffering does not compare to the glory that's to come. And we're going to get a glimpse as to why he can say that. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as he writes this letter, he's listing kind of what he's been through. And he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So that's 39 lashes because 40 was considered a death sentence if you received 40 lashes. He received 39 five times. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the sea, city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And am I not weak? So he gives us this tremendous list of his sufferings. We know that this man is more closely acquainted with suffering than most of us will ever be. 
during our time on earth. He has suffered more than most of us ever will. But in the very next chapter of 2 Corinthians, we find out that he also is more acquainted with glory than most of us will be during our time on earth because he's been given a glimpse of heaven. So I want you to listen as I read from the very next chapter, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul here changes to the third person to write about an experience that he had. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heavens, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In the NIV, it says that he heard inexpressible things. So it says he's caught up to the third heaven. Let me just explain that a little bit. In Jewish thought, the first heavens is where the birds fly. The second heavens would be like where the stars and the moon is. And then the third heavens is the glory of God, the presence of God, uh, where Christ dwells. So that would be the third heavens. So Paul is saying that he was caught up. He doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body, if it was a vision or if he was taken there. He's not sure, but he's not worried about that. He's like, God knows what happened. And I love that he says that he heard things which no one can utter, inexpressible things. What did he hear? What did he hear? I just have to wonder, like, was it the angels, the songs of the angels And no words could express the beauty of it? Was it the choirs of the saints in heaven along with the angels? Was it the voice of Christ, which we learn in Revelation is like the sound of many roaring waters? I'm guessing it's a combination of all of it. And all of it together, he was like, no one could ever say what this was like. It was beyond comprehension. And that's why he can say the suffering of this present time does not compare with the glory that is coming, the glory that will be revealed to us. If you are not going along with the Bible study, take some time and look in Revelation 21 and 22. Get your mind wrapped around what glory is coming And it helps us to set our suffering in context. It does not take away the suffering, but it helps the suffering to have the correct context that glory is coming. Suffering is temporal. Glory will be eternal. Another really cool thing about this is that in the NIV, it says in Romans 8, 18, it says in uh, in the NIV, it says the glory is going to be revealed in us. And then in the ESV, it says the glory is going to be revealed to us. And I love that question, like, which is it? Is it in us or to us? And the answer is, of course, yes, <laughs> it's both. First uh, John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So when Christ returns, we will see him. His glory will be revealed to us. And then we will instantly be transformed into his likeness and his glory will will be revealed in us. 
It'll first be revealed to us, and then his glory will be revealed in us. To us, and then in us. All right, let's go on to the next verse. All right, so the next thing Paul writes is, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This idea in this chunk of scripture is going to come up a number of times, the idea of eagerly longing and waiting eagerly. So it's this idea of like you're waiting and you're patient. The word patience is going to come up a little bit later. But you're patient and longing and eager all at the same time. And that is the way that creation is waiting for the return of Christ. And that is the way that we are called to wait as well. When I think about eager longing, the best thing that comes to mind is actually my dogs. So I think I've mentioned them before. We have two big dogs and they get walked every day unless it's raining or like 20 below, but pretty much every day they get walked. But every single day they still act like it's the first time ever and it's the most exciting thing in the entire world. And when they start figuring out that it's time to go on a walk, when they see me putting on my tennis shoes, or if they just hear the word a bunch, um, they they know and they know it's time. And they just like, they go crazy. And one of them is like an 85 pound pit bull who I think gained weight over the winter. He might be more than that now. And he will just start like jumping on all fours. He's so excited to go for his walk. And the other one, he, he just starts like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> he's so excited to go for his walk. And, um, and they will go to the entryway and they will sit there um, looking up where their harnesses hang on the wall and they will wag their tails just fast, furiously wag their tails with so much excitement. But then, you know, it takes a while because I got to get my shoes on and sometimes I have to get their collars on. Sometimes I, I, or I'll forget to grab a bag for when they go to the bathroom. In the winter, you know, you got to get yourself suited up with hats, gloves, scarves, you know, whatever you need. Um, a kid will come and talk to me. I'll remember that I need to use the bathroom before I go. You know, there's it's kind of a process to get out of the house. So sometimes they have to wait kind of a long time. And they are waiting eagerly. And they're trying so hard to be patient. And they are longing. Sometimes there's literally drool coming out of their mouths onto the rug in the entryway. Because they are waiting eagerly. They are longing. They are patient. They are expectant. They are everything that the creation is is here also in, in verse 19 when it says the creation waits with eager longing. That is how we are supposed to wait. Creation is waiting that way. And later on in the next couple of verses, we're going to find out that that's the, that is the way that we are supposed to be as well, waiting for the return of Christ. All right. So what it says here, though, is really interesting. It says, for the creation um, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is just amazing. The revealing of the sons of God. Who is that? That's us. We already learned that. We talked about that last week, that we are adopted into sonship through the Lord Jesus, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are the sons of God, and we will be revealed in glory when Jesus returns. So when Jesus Jesus returns, we will be transformed into his glory. And then it says the earth will take its cue from us, and the earth will be transformed into the glory of the sons of God. So the earth is still going to take its cue. It's The earth is going to take its leadership from human beings 
even after the return of Christ, I just think this is so beautiful. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when when God created the earth and then he created Adam and he told Adam and Eve to rule over the earth. That was their job, to be the, the king and queen of the earth, to rule over the earth. And we still get to be the kings and queens of the earth. We still are going to rule over the earth, to reign over the earth in the new creation. The new creation will take its cue from humankind after humankind gets transformed into glory, then the earth itself will be transformed into glory. Just amazing. And it's waiting eagerly. All right, verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Okay, we're going to stop there. There's two more words in this verse, but we're going to stop here and just take this part Creation was subjected to futility. That happened in Genesis chapter 3. If you're doing the Bible study, you went, th- you went there this week and you read that. It's the curse um, after Adam and Eve fell into sin and the curse came upon the whole earth. And what's interesting here is it says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God. God is the one who subjected it. God is the one who let the curse fall over the whole earth knowing full well that he was going to bring it back out from the curse of sin. That hasn't happened yet. That will happen when Jesus returns and renews all things. But from the beginning, God's plan was that it was going to be under the curse of sin for a time and then will be set free from that curse. I think it's really interesting also that uh, this verse says creation was subjected to futility. So if you look up futility, um, it means having no effect, achieving nothing, pointlessness or uselessness, no purpose or importance, no useful result. I find that astounding because think about our earth. Our earth is amazing. Like our earth produces food for the entire world, even though The world is not properly fed. It's because we lack a distribution method that works. Um, We have way too much greed in our world and don't distribute the food well. But the earth produces the food necessary to feed 8 billion people. The earth is so full of natural resources and it's so beautiful and wonderful. And yet... This verse says that it's been subjected to futility. If you're reading the NIV, it says frustration. Most other translations use the word futile. And I just think, okay, if this is considered futile, this amazing, abundant earth we live in, what's it supposed to look like? Like when Jesus comes and restores the earth, what is it going to be like? It is beyond comprehension. Think about the most beautiful, stunning place you've ever been. I love nature. I am such a nature girl. I love mountains and mountain streams and waterfalls. Oh, man. I just was telling Paul the other day, I was like, I need a waterfall. I haven't seen a waterfall. Gosh, I think it's maybe been like two years (laughs) since I've been to a waterfall. And I'm like, I need a waterfall. (laughs) Oh, um, and, you know, just like a beach, like, Oh, the turquoise waters. Oh, there's just nothing like it. Last year, we got to go to the turquoise waters about a year ago. And man, it's healing for the soul to sit and look at turquoise waters with dolphins swimming in it. 
Or if you like big waves crashing on the ocean rocks like in Northern California. I mean, that is just so phenomenal. Whatever you love, whatever you love in nature, think about that place. And then imagine what it would be like without the curse of sin. Try to wrap your mind around that this beautiful place that you love so much is actually currently under the curse of sin. And one day it will be set free from the curse of sin and it will be as it was intended to be. What is that going to be like? What is it going to be like? Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. He goes on in this verse and he says, okay, so... So God subjected the earth to fertility. And then in verse 21, he says, in hope that, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Earth is going to obtain the freedom of the glory of children of God. It will be transformed. Jesus will return. We will be transformed in the likeness of Christ. And then he will renew the earth into his glory, his original plan for the earth. I want to just share a little bit about um, about this from a book called Heaven by Randy Elkhorn. Um, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's fantastic. It, it reads like a textbook and it looks like a textbook. But it is wonderful as Randy Elkhorn helps us to think through what is coming. All right, he says here, every joy on earth, including the joy of reunion, is an inkling, a whisper of greater joy. The Grand Canyon, the Alps, the Amazon rainforest, the Serengeti Plain, these are rough sketches of the new earth. All our lives we've been dreaming of the new earth. Whenever we see beauty in water, wind, flower, deer, man, woman, or child, we catch a glimpse of heaven. Just like the Garden of Eden, the new earth will be a place of sensory delight, breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. I just love that all our lives we've been waiting, dreaming of the new earth. Everything beautiful here is a glimpse of what is to come. All right, now let's go on to verse 22. So we're back into Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I think it's so wonderful that the Apostle Paul here is using the pains of childbirth as his analogy. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew. So certainly Paul is taking the lead from Jesus as he talks about the fact that right now the suffering of the earth is the pains of childbirth. There are so many painful experiences in the human in the human life that don't result in something new or beautiful or good. My husband told me that a shattered femur is supposed to be the most painful thing the human body experiences. Nothing new, good, beautiful comes out of a shattered femur. I mean, it, it can heal, but it's not going to bring forth something brand new. Childbirth is a type of suffering that brings forth something brand new and beautiful. And that is the way that creation has been groaning. And then in verse 23, we learn that we are groaning as well. Verse 23 says, And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
I want to spend a little bit of time on this verse. He says, I'm just going to read it again, and we are going to take it bit by bit. There's so much in this one verse to discuss. So verse 23 of Romans 8 says, And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we're going to talk about three things in this one verse. The first fruits of the Spirit. What does that mean? We're going to talk about what it means to groan inwardly. And we're going to talk about what it means to wait eagerly. All right, so first of all, the first fruits of the Spirit. That can be a really difficult phrase to understand because it sounds like or it could sound like what Paul is saying is that we've only received the first part of the Spirit. Like, there's more Holy Spirit to come, but we don't get it yet. That is not what he's saying. If you are listening to this right now, and if you are a believer in Jesus, I want you to say out loud to yourself, I have the whole Holy Spirit. I have the whole Holy Spirit. Say it with me. I have the whole Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus, we have the whole Holy Spirit. The whole Holy Spirit comes into us. So then why does this say the first fruits of the Spirit? Well, we get the whole Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of of the inheritance to come. So the whole inheritance to come is the kingdom. We get the whole kingdom. And the first fruits of the kingdom is the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's like God is giving us a deposit on our inheritance, like a down payment on our inheritance. He's like, the inheritance is coming. It's a sure thing. It's a guarantee. And just to keep you encouraged during your walk on this earth, because there will be suffering, So to encourage you and to teach you and to advocate for you and to pray for you and to lead you, I'm going to give you the first fruits of the inheritance and that is the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us. He says this another way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22, Paul writes, he anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the inheritance to come. It's a guarantee of what's to come. It's a deposit. Now think about how wild this is. The God of the universe, the God of all creation, does not owe me a thing. He does not owe me a thing. And yet, not only did he send his son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take away my penalty, to take away my condemnation, and then he rose from the grave to give me life forever, to to prove to me that he has victory over sin, death, and the devil, and that I don't have to be afraid of anything in this life. He did all of that for me, and then still he decided to give me a deposit on the inheritance that is to come. I do not deserve a deposit. But he gives us one because he loves us. He lavishes his love upon us. Praise be to God who gives us a deposit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of the inheritance to encourage us, empower us, to be with us, to lead us, to teach us all the days of our life on this earth until we get to the full inheritance. It's so amazing. 
We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Let's talk about this groaning. So we already talked earlier. Um, We learned in um, verse 22 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And now in verse 23, we learn that we groan inwardly. In verse 26, which is going to be in our next session, we're going to learn that the Holy Spirit groans with us as well. And I want to show you something in the Bible today where we're going to see that Jesus also groans. This groaning that is used here in all of these verses is a word in Greek called stenazo, S-T-E-N-A-Z-O. And it means to groan or deep sigh with grief and complaint, an audible expression of anguish due to physical, emotional, or spiritual pain. So what this is saying now here in the text is that both creation and us, as well as the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself, we all groan in anguish, expressing the fact that we are in physical, emotional, spiritual pain, things are not as they're meant to be. This life in this world is not as it's supposed to be. And it gives me so much comfort to know that Jesus himself, while he walked on this earth, he also groaned the way that we groan in our suffering. So I want to share this with you, where this word is used in um, in connection with Jesus In Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 31, Jesus is going to heal a deaf man. It's really fascinating to me because Jesus has healed so many people up to this point. He has done a great number of healings. And something about this made him groan. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he had seen many, many people that day who needed healing. And he was just weary of a broken world. And he groans in this scenario. So I'll read it for you and I'll show you where the word groan uh, is. So it says here, Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven and he sighed. Okay, that's the word stenazo, a deep sigh or a groan. So he sighed, he groaned. And he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Jesus sighed. He groaned. Things are not the way they're supposed to be and it causes us to groan. And that is okay. What I want you to learn here is that Jesus is groaning alongside you. In verse 26, like I said, next session, we're going to learn that the, the Holy Spirit is groaning alongside us. In your suffering, you do not groan alone. You can say that out loud to yourself too. I do not groan alone. You have a Holy Spirit indwelling you who groans with you. You have a Savior in heaven who groans with you. I hope that you have friends and family and a body of believers around you who groan alongside you. You do not groan alone. But the purpose of our groaning is also explained to us at the end of this verse. It says that we 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. This is the purpose of our groaning, to cause us to wait eagerly. Look, if everything was great on planet Earth, if our lives had no suffering whatsoever, and everything was just as it should be, we would not wait eagerly for the return of Christ. The word here for wait eagerly, it's the same word that was used up in verse 19 when we learn that creation is waiting with eager longing. That same word is used here in verse 23, and it's the word apekdekomai in Greek. And it means literally to wait eagerly, to wait eagerly. It is used seven times in the New Testament. The, the Greek word apekdekomai is used seven times in the New Testament. Now, if you're following along with the Spirit Life Bible study, you went through this week and you looked up all seven times in the New Testament that this word is used. Every single time it's used, it is used in reference to the return of Christ, that we are waiting eagerly for the return of Christ. They're all worded a little bit differently in each verse, but each verse is pointing to the return of Christ. And that, those are the only seven times this word is used. And that is the only thing that we are called to be waiting for is the return of the Lord Jesus. That speaks so loudly to me. There is one single thing that believers in Jesus are supposed to have their eyes fixed on and should be waiting eagerly for. We wait for a lot of things. I am waiting for the weather to get warm. We have had the worst, longest winter ever in Fargo, North Dakota, and I am waiting for it to get done. I am waiting for certain trips. I am waiting for um, our stock market account to grow big enough to pay for kids' college. I am waiting for, you know, X, Y, or Z. You might be expecting a baby. Maybe you're waiting for a baby. Maybe you're getting married and you're waiting for your wedding, and that's exciting. Maybe you're waiting for a promotion at work. Maybe you're waiting for a, a really fun trip that you have plane tickets purchased for. You know, there's, there's so many good things that we wait for, but biblically speaking, there is one thing, one thing that we should eagerly wait for and anticipate, and that is the return of Christ. And I think we get so busy fixing our eyes on different things that we're waiting for that will happen on earth, that we lose sight. We forget that there's one thing to wait for, and that is Jesus coming back and making all things new. That's what we are waiting for, dear friends. When we read the New Testament, we can see really clearly that the writers of the New Testament thought that Jesus was coming back like really soon while they were still alive. And sometimes we can read those parts, those verses of the New Testament, and we can think they were so wrong. And I want to challenge us to think, no, they were so right because they teach us how to think. They teach us how to think as believers in Jesus. We are supposed to live like Jesus is coming back now. Jesus himself said in Revelation, behold, I am coming soon. He said the words, I am coming soon, several times at the end of Revelation. I want to share with you the way that Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. He's trying to encourage some people who 
who clearly have are grieving because they are worried that some of their loved ones who died, they're worried about what's going to happen to them because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And he wants them to to know that that it's going to be okay. So here's what he says. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is very clearly saying that he expects to be alive when Jesus returns. So like I said, it's easy for us to think, man, he was really wrong. That was 2,000 years ago. I just want to challenge that mindset. Man, he was really right. He lived like Jesus is coming back now. That is the single thing that the Apostle Paul anticipated every day was the return of Christ. And I want that to be the single thing that I anticipate every single day that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Rebecca, what are you waiting for? Jesus is coming back. Rebecca, what are you excited for? Jesus is coming back. Rebecca, what are your plans this summer? Well, we have some plans, but only if Jesus isn't coming back first. First priority, Jesus is coming back. Everything else falls after that. Look, the return of Christ is the only certain thing. The only certain thing. Some people think, you know, there's like a joke that says the only certain things are death and taxes. That is not true. Those things are not certain. You might not ever die on this earth because Jesus might come back today. Death is not certain. Absolutely not. Here's what I know. Jesus is coming back. That is the only certain thing. So let us live like that is the only thing worth waiting for. Because in fact, it is the only thing worth waiting for. So he says, we will wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our adoption as sons will be made whole and complete upon the return of Christ, and our bodies will be redeemed. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says mortality must put on immortality. The, Im- the perishable, like my perishable body, must put on the imperishability of an eternal body. And that will happen uh, at, at the return of Christ. So verse 24, Paul writes, For it is in this hope that we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Who hopes in what he sees? Everything on this earth is something that we can see. None of it deserves our hope. Biblically speaking, hope is not wishing. So when I say things like, I really hope it doesn't snow this weekend, what I really mean is I'm, I'm wishing that the storm system that apparently is coming will change directions. I'm wishing for that. But hope, biblically, is a sure, absolute guarantee. Hope is a fixed thing, like this is going to happen. Which is why, biblically speaking, our hope can only be in Jesus and his return. That's it. 
That is the hope that is not seen. Who hopes for what he already sees? Who hopes for something that's on earth? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friend, when we miss a point, our hope, we get disappointed hearts. Let's appoint our hope correctly on the Lord Jesus and his return. That is where our hope is supposed to be appointed so that our hearts don't become disappointed. In closing today, I would just like to read for you a little bit um, from the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. There is this beautiful place where the at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia where the characters, the children who've gone through all of the experiences in Narnia come into the real Narnia. The old Narnia fades away and they come into the real Narnia. And I just want to share with you about, about how C.S. Lewis writes about this experience as we wrap up here. The eagle is right, said Lord Daggery. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia that you were thinking of. But that wasn't the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered... All of the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is from a dream. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia is like that. The new one was deeper, a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked like it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there... You'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. Dear friend, Glory is a guarantee, and it is coming. It is coming. I know that right now we experiencing we experience suffering in this world, but hang on, hang on, friend, because glory is coming, and glory will be revealed first to us, and then glory will be revealed in us, and then glory will be revealed all around us. Glory is guaranteed, and it's coming. So hang on, dear friend. Hang on. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Seeking Pearls podcast. I hope you have an awesome day. 